This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. UX management often feels like a mystic art. It can entail moving people and processes within an organization without the enhancement of an official mandate. This presentation by Dan Willis deconstructs an illustrated fable about an intrepid creature who introduces user goals to a development process that would have otherwise been dominated by royal business owners and technological black magic. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. That's my daughter, Ava. She's three and a half. And, and she said, you know, you gotta understand one thing about Ava. Ava doesn't know how to read yet. She's getting there. She's got her alphabet down. She's bilingual. She can do all sorts of cool stuff, but she hasn't got the reading thing yet. But she'll, she'll get impatient with the way we're reading stories, and she'll grab her away from us. And she'll read back a story of her own devising. And for the last six months or so, her stories always begin exactly the same way. They always start, no matter what it's about, and one day. And so she says, I asked her advice, and she says, well, Daddy, you know, the middle part, I don't know, it's a little loose in the end. You really need to work on the end, Patty. But that beginning part needs to change. It's not going to work. Once upon a time, it's never going to I said, hi, yeah. It's a stereotype. It's, like, it's more like a stereotype. It's a convention. People will understand what I'm talking about when I do this. And so she gets up with my grill. She says, Daddy, 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 how many times have we talked about protecting expertise? <laughs> and which one of us is wearing the crown? So this is how I'm starting my story. <laughs> and one day, a king sent out a proclamation that all the creatures of his kingdom would team up to build a pretty thing for his daughter, the princess. The little UX was working, he's there in the back, the little UX was working in the library, as little UXs have a tendency to do, uh, when the proclamation was being read out loud in the courtyard. My pretty thing will have bouncy balls. Bells, the princess announced uh, uh, yesterday, the little UX said. But, but why? Why exactly bouncy bells? And the princess says, oh, oh, oh. Did I mention that it will have wonderful whistles too? She said, uh, yes, your majesty, the little UX replied. But perhaps we should just first figure out who's going to be using those, those bells and those whistles. And so he did. And days passed, just as the little UX was finishing up his notes on writing, uh, writing up notes from a focus group of 200 to 250 year old trolls, <laughs> who had eaten five to six sheep over the course of six to seven months, <laughs> uh, the birdie came and whispered in his ear. And he, and he said that the project's wizards, the mighty wizards, were having trouble picking the right spells to conjure up, conjure up the princess's pretty thing. Well, this is distressing. So, the little UX walked all day and all night to get to Magic Village. 
What seems to be the problem? He asked the first wizard he came across. Well, instead of answering, the wizard led the little UX to the square at the middle of Magic Village, where the princess had posted her orders. And this is what the order said. The order said, what princess wants? One, not two bells, two whistles. And please make them one. <laughs> Using the wisdom he gained from talking with the princess and with group of trolls and hobbits and shepherds and a little subset of fairies he figured he had to talk to, the little UX created a list of specific tasks that the pretty thing would need to support. And based on those tasks, the wizards quickly produced seven scrolls. Each scroll contained a different spell. And they stuck those scrolls in a sack, and gave them a little UX, and they pointed them towards Witch Mountain, which is where the witches are casting spells. Well, the little UX climbed all day, climbed all day, climbed all day, and climbed all night to get to the top of Witch Mountain. From there, he met the princess, who of course had flown down from 10,000 feet on the back of a magical dragon. <laughs> and the little UX showed the princess the list of tasks he created for the wizards, and then he showed her the seven scrolls. But to the little UX's shock and horror, the princess, she started to cry. <laughs> now that I see what's going to be built, I don't think I like this pretty thing, she said, as calmly as he could, because he's a little upset. As calmly as he could, the little UX asked, my princess, my princess, what would you like to change exactly? She thinks about it. Well, I'm thinking wonderful bells and bouncy whistles. Uh, and not only that, but it should be the same color blue as my eyes, she said. So the little UX talked with the princess for three days, talked nonstop talk for three days. And at the end of that third day, she finally agreed not to scrap the project, right? She said, okay, let's stick with it. So the witches started to cast their spells. They took those scrolls and started to cast those spells. Uh, but parts of the pretty things started to show up in silly places. You know, an engine over here, and a seat over there, all over the place. And the little UX ran around the village collecting these parts. And then he took a coil of strong wire, and he built a frame to put those parts together. <laughs> the little UX, does this sound familiar? <laughs> The little UX asked the head witch to cast her spells uh, using this frame of wire that he built as a guide. And the head witch had been casting spells, you've got to understand this, that the head witch had been casting spells for more years than the little UX had been alive. And she didn't see the need to change the way that she did her magic, so she only agreed to recast a few parts of the pretty thing. Uh, and when the little UX asked, well, you know, when can the rest of these parts be available, the old witch croaked, me too, I think. <laughs> Well, after all that, eventually, the pretty thing was ready for its maiden voyage. The princess thanked the witches for their work, and she leaned down from her seat on the pretty thing, and she kissed the little UX, the little UX right on the forehead. And she said, I shall never forget you, nor the wisdom you have shown me, she said. And then she flew the pretty thing deep into cyberspace, where it still is today. Unfortunately, the princess married a prince from another kingdom and never returned to the area. She never made revisions to the pretty thing as the needs of its users changed, and so it fell into disrepair and it was seldomly accessed. Years later, the little UX heard that the princess had built another pretty thing for her new kingdom. It was blue, it was very pretty, 
and it was practically worthless. So that's the story. So let's start to chart this. Let's chart some of the stuff that we talked about. Well, one thing is, there were three distinct phases, right? There was a definition phase, there was back-end design that went on, and then there was implementation. Now, the princess, let's talk about roles. The princess was all about definition, right? It was her vision that made the whole thing happen. But as major stakeholders have a tendency to do, she decided to dabble in the back-end design as well, and she bounced into implementation a couple of times as well. Not completely unheard of in our world. Now, the wizards, if you remember, they were the ones that figured out what, what the spells were that they put on the scrolls. Uh, they were basically the coders. They built back in the design. The witches took that code, and they built the thing that would then launch and be real. So they were in charge of implementation. Now, as far as everyone else was concerned, all the other creatures of the kingdom were concerned, this was the, man, this was the, the team. Right? But the little UX said, well, OK, uh, I really want this to succeed. I'm going to have to find a way to get involved in each piece of this. And he never really had the opportunity to fight for any space. It's not like he said, well, look here, look, I'm in charge here. I'll take care of this. You didn't hear that in the story at all. So he ended up being in every phase. So it brings up some key issues that we all deal with, I would suggest. One of them is success without ownership. A lot of times, somebody else owns the product definition. So in this case, the little UX really is the one that pulled the user into the conversation. He's the one that from the library said, well, wait a second, you know, who's, who's using this stuff? Princess didn't particularly appreciate that. She went along with it. So there's a lesson to be learned here, right? One of the lessons is, you may not be the only person that thinks things are screwed up. The wizards knew that what they were getting was not that great. But they're not going to be the first ones that say something. So a lot of times, what I've seen in my experience is that the user experience professionals are the first ones that have to say something. Because if they don't, things are going to go so far awry that at the end of it, they can't be successful. So lots of people see the trouble. UX really has to stand up and say something about it. Another problem underneath the, the header of success without ownership is that frequently somebody else owns the requirement, right? In this case, there were incomplete requirements. They're totally owned by the wizard, but the little a, little a found a way in. Well, I think the parallel, one of the things you might see in, in our day to day, is that tech teams traditionally don't push back on bad requirements as much as the UX folks would really like them to. And there's a few reasons for this. It seems like in every development, somebody's trying to turn somebody else into services, right? You never want to be the one that somebody else says, oh yeah, they like services. But tech has been, doing, has been services longer than UX professionals have. So they have sort of this like acceptance to it, I would say, in general. And it is a massive generalization. But you see more often than not that a, that, that a tech team will say, okay, okay, well, let's do what you're telling me to do. But you get to the, the second bullet, they really get rewarded for the specific work. I gave you a list of five things. Did you do those five things? You did, then you did well, here's your bonus. Not, and did that lead to overall success? Historically, that hasn't been as tied in to the tech world as it has been to the UX world. They also have a tendency not to have used user needs as much. Uh, it's such a great tool, right? I mean, you saw the little UX do it again and again and say, okay, if I can figure out how this, how this deals with the user, I can start to solve these problems. He did it in sort of an indirect way, but we can also use that directly. So that's another lesson, I think, in this period. Frequently, somebody else owns implementation. The witches were all about implementation. Go ahead, which, in fact, was very territorial about that. She really wasn't looking for suggestions from anybody else. Uh, but he brought cohesion to what otherwise was parts being showing up all over the place. 
He's the one that brought it together. And the way he did it is he started with the user. He said, what's a user going to see at the end of this? So one of the things, one of the lessons out of this is that frequently implementation, and this isn't a bad thing, this isn't a criticism. Implementation is geared towards implementing things. That's good. But that's not enough sometimes. And it's the UX that really has to talk about uh, maximizing user experience that you need to go further than did I just implement it? Did I just launch it? Launch it is not necessarily enough. Because highly effective user experiences really don't just happen magically, even in fairy tales. So another key point that I'm trying to make here that I'm beating with a big fairy tale stick is acceptance is not binary. It looks like it, it smells like it, but it's not necessarily binary. Everybody loves the user, right? And then it gets in the way of their personal desire. So we saw this with, with uh, even as the discovery was going on, the witch is, uh, excuse me, the princess is like, well, I know he's doing this stuff, but I'm just going to go to the wizards. Look, it's simple. I got two things: bouncy ball, whistles. What's the what's the problem? Start doing it. I know he's working on that stuff. He's talking about trolls. Okay, let's go. If you're forcing users into the process, you can really expect to deal with the same problems again and again and again. So. What the same problem with the little UX was doing with it, all three distinct phases, he had to reintroduce the user. You'd almost think like, hey, I introduced them in, in, in definition, so I won't have to deal with it with the back end. But that's not true. Back end, you almost start off, even with the same exact people. So you should be prepared, if you're managing UX resources, be prepared to make the same arguments again and again and again within the same project. So another point about this is that everybody loves a user until there's pain involved, right? As soon as she saw it for real for the first time, as soon as she could really picture it past just, I want this and I want this, the princess busted out crying. She didn't, she, that's not what she had in her mind at all. And it's not even blue, you know? Because that, that happened. And what, what I've seen is what's happened in my experience is you get, you get love. You know, not just acceptance, you get love. People, people are like, we love what you're doing. This is great. As soon as it hurts. And then it's like none of that conversation happened, and you have to start building consensus all over again. Now, in really strong teams, that's a five-minute conversation, right? Hey, we talked about this. We were going to do this. This should work right now. Yeah, okay, I got it. In less functional teams, this is something that takes <laughs> every moment until you launch again, right? That's something you should expect. And then another point for really acceptance is not the same as buying. Yeah, I accept it, but they don't own that commitment, right? They haven't really committed to it. Common tools aren't really commonly understood. That head witch was never going to take the frame of wire, the wireframe, seriously. Fact is, and we know this, we say this all the time, we take these tools a hell of a lot more seriously than anybody else we're ever going to deal with. I mean, you know, we really should, but we got to be aware of it. This is one of those that you just want to be aware of. It. So, this could have been another fairy tale. I could have brought you in here and said, once upon a time, oh, sorry, I mean, and one day, uh, and talked about a UX manager being king. And now, I've heard this story. It sounds like a great story. I've heard it told many times. I've just never personally experienced it. What has been my experience is that in the real world, you really have to throw tactics in at every rung of the conceptual ladder. I know it sounds a little hackneyed, but it actually makes sense to me, so I use it. Conceptual ladder, the idea that at the highest rung, it's, you know, what is the purpose of this thing? It's, use, it to, use tactics to insert the user at that stage, all the way down to, should it be this pixel or this pixel? Right, so you introduce the user by saying, well, based on your most important user's needs, it should be that. Right? Using tactics up and down the conceptual ladder. The other thing is, don't hold your breath for a mandate. 
This is a highly cynical, totally based on my own experience, and the way I like to do business is I could definitely spend, I could have spent about 80% of the last five years, six years, arguing for Spain, right? I said, this is our, this is our territory. And, or, or even, you know, the trap that always falls for me is when I have direct reports who need that space, then I'm fighting for them, and now I'm, you know, I've got a glint in my eye. Um, in a, in a, in a, in a sort of a democratic environment, that means you're gonna invite yourself to live in bureaucracy, right? It's all about, do I, do I get the FTEs? If I trade off this FTE, do I get that full-time employee? Do I get this? <clears throat> you basically have to deal with the bureaucracy. If you're in a fascist environment, right? If, you're, if you've got a big spectrum up there, and democracy's on one end of your organization, fascism's on the other, if you're in a fascist environment, it's all about police force. It says, yeah, I can make UX be king, but every year I need 10% more, I need 10% more police force than I did the year before. Neither one of these things are what make me happy in my professional life. These are not things that moved me. So I didn't spend a lot of time with them. I was like, I, I squeezed what I could out of both of those. You know, work the bureaucracy when I have to, be a little fascist when I need to. But as soon as it started to slip into a major part of my life, I'm like, okay, I gotta find another way to do it. And really, if if I didn't make any other point about this fairy tale, I like the way the little UX does business. It's not ideal. You know, I think I think a UX Manager should be king. I do think that's the way it should be. I know that it'll make better products. It won't just make better people, it'll make better products. I'm positive. I can't see how to make that happen without my life being all about paperwork or police force, and neither one of those is acceptable. So I like the way the UX does business because he says, well, I can make things better, and I can use the user to make things better. Um, and I know when I'm doing that, it's not just my own personal gratification. I know it's right. I know I'm doing what's best for that organization. So, couple screens full of tips. If it's missing, force the user into the product's definition, right? I'm talking about putting tactics in at every level. This is specific to definition. Put the user in the definition. Nobody else is gonna do it. Another tip based on my experience is adjust those requirements to help make the user unavoidable. Now this is a concept I like a lot. I stole it from somewhere. I think John Bowman's got something that I didn't quote. But it's the idea that he, he does it not so much about the user being unavoidable, it's about um, mistakes where the solution is unavoidable. Anyway, it's a good approach, it's a good idea. And the idea is that, that um, the way you phrase the requirements, the way you build in user tasks and how your user goals are addressed and how you define the user experience in the requirements makes it impossible for people to just act like there aren't users at the other end of it. That's pretty effective, I found. This is a no doubt. And uh, sometimes the best information is no doubt. So I apologize ahead of time, this is a no doubt. Offer solutions for every problem raised. We don't have a long, you know, we don't have decades of, of uh, understood success where people go, oh, I know, I, mean, I totally buy the user experience, that's great. If they're talking, it must be real. Um, if they're telling me something wrong, it must be wrong. So there's constantly a credibility issue with the stuff we deal with. And what that means is you really have a lot of pressure on you. You can't just say, well, this is wrong. You have to say, this is wrong, here's how I think we should deal with it. What I'm not suggesting, because you've heard me argue against it a couple times. I'm not suggesting fascism. I'm not saying that you say, I have the solution and this is how you will solve it. It's that you say, I have a problem, I had a first sh shot at how to fix it, now let's come up with a real solution. I'll actually say it that way. I'll be in, a, in an environment where I need to push back and I'll say, this is probably not the answer, but it's a, it's a bad answer that'll get us to a good answer. And then you get their work into it. Again, I'm really not wired to sit there and say, I know I'm right and I'm gonna fight everyone on the planet until I make it right. That's not what I'm coaching. What I'm coaching is, have something to start with. 
So they're not just staring at you going, it's a problem, huh? You know, because then they're going to say, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it, is. it builds credibility. So be ready to work harder than the people in all the other departments. Then my experience that nobody wants minutia, nobody wants, well, of course now I'm redefining because the way Jared talks about it, nobody wants process, they want the end result of both of those things. So those are opportunities. I think as UX professionals, we should grab those. Hey, nobody wants them? I'll take minutia. Hey, you want me to go through and do a content inventory of anything ever done? Let me do that. Because in there is where the power is. That's where you're going to make things happen. Enjoy the little success, and I, I get progressively uh, more cynical as the slide goes down. <laughs> Enjoy the little successes. Just don't take them at face value. Somebody says, this was great. I love the way you did it. A princess leans over the pretty thing and kisses them on the forehead and said, I'll never forget you, baby. You're great. Flies off and does exactly the same thing again. Um, that has been my experience. Short-term gains just don't necessarily stick. And then a sort of extension of that to even more negative negative way of talking about it, you're really successful in this project, my experience is, don't expect it to have any positive momentum for the next project. If it does, great. This is all about how we manage ourselves and how we manage people to report to us. This is about, hey, we did well in this project, enjoy it. If you if you sit around and wait for them to expect you to be great the next time, you're going to say, oh, you were so great the last time, you're going to be great this time. You're wasting your, you know, you're missing an opportunity. If they give you the love, great, but don't wait for it. So that's pretty much my whole fairy tale piece. And what I'm really interested in is what you guys are going to talk about. How do you get user experience baked into our projects? How have you succeeded without ownership? Um, and and I'll, I'll give you a hint on this. OK, if they don't have any answers for the first one, uh, maybe the, easy, the next one will be easier. Well, maybe the third one will be easier than the second. What have you been the biggest challenges? And the last one is, well, nobody's going to talk about anything. At least they can talk about the big issues that they've been dealing with. So who's the first brave soul to come up and talk about this? No one? Good. Thank you. I will give you $5. <laughs> There's also time for questions, but uh, frankly, I can't believe you have any questions that I ask. I'm open to them, but it's more I want to hear what you guys talk about. Yeah, I'll talk to them. Sorry. Um, this last year, I think one of the things that has worked best to get, uh, get the user into the conversation and keep them there is when you get them requirements, actually we get something a little bit different. We don't get these very spare requirements. We get these very heavily developed and overblown requirements of which people are very proud. Um, initially we give them exactly what they want. Create that. Do that. Take that into the lab. But take what you want in there too. Assuming you have that level too. So exactly what they've done and taken it verbatim, put that up there in front of the users. Because even though they're paying you, and even though you're on the staff, and it's your job to know these kinds of things, for whatever reason, they're not going to believe you. But you get it into the lab, and all of a sudden, all these things that you may have said a hundred times are true because the user said so. Not only that, if you can have them in the lab to watch it, even better. Because they'll see this thing go down in flames. Uh, and uh, then you've got something else, hopefully, you brought something else in there that uh, if you know what you're doing, hopefully it's going to get a little bit better play, and you can say, okay, well, here's the beginning of something else over here. Why don't we tease this thing out, since it seems to resonate a little bit now. And uh, that exact scenario is something that occurred this last year um, at our company, and it's very interesting to see now um, the difference in temperament of the people that we're dealing with, now that we all sort of shared this failure that we, quite honestly, teed up. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, can I ask a question? How did that play? 
Um, obviously, you can't sit there and say, well, we told you so. Well, how do you, how do you end up not looking like you're screwed up? Well, very much by, by, by not saying I told you so. <laughs> you know, you, you, you kind of act like you're in there with, gosh, you know, yeah. we really thought this was going to work. Uh, yeah, we're in there with you. Gosh, I'm feeling your pain. This is hideous. Well, you know, but, but, but they give us something else to work with. Let's go talk about this a little bit more and bring that up. So, yeah, there's a little bit of con. But it sounds like, too, you and I are overlapping on one of my, my suggestions about working your ass off more than everybody else. Did you have trouble with the rest of your team sort of resenting that they had to do, basically do twice the work? Well, actually, it was a fairly small team, and hey, smack them up. Haven't, no, really, haven't really had that problem because you know they've all experienced the same black eyes, and uh, rather than, than than keep beating your head against the wall to say the user, the user, the user, the user, we took a shot at seeing at getting creating a scenario where things would loosen up, and pretty patient group in that respect, and so uh, there really wasn't uh, certainly no argument from our team. Uh, Can I keep you up for one more yeah. question? It sounds, I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing when I bloated requirements, one of the things I've seen is, uh, and actually some of you folks have known me, roll your eyes because I always talk about it. It sounds like one of those things where the what and the how, I see requirements a lot of times where the what and how are so intertwined yeah, that you don't get to the important part, which is well, what was the what part before yeah. you the how. Well, there's that, and uh, that's something that you know we, we're trying to find other ways to manage, but it also was a product of the fact that um, for those of you who don't know, it, it's a travel, well-known travel company. Um, you have a lot of business ownership across the whole company, and this was specifically the wrong page. So you have all of these different lines of business that have all of their things that are important to them and all the gotchas that they feel like they absolutely have to have no matter what else happens. And it becomes pretty difficult you know, to, to, to be fair to the business owners on this project. Uh, they have a lot of people that they have to satisfy. And uh, to try and wade through that and weigh one thing over another is difficult for them. And so uh, it's probably not completely lost on them, you know, what we did. I don't know if a little nudge and a wink. Um, but what, by doing what we did, we gave them the ability to go back and to be able to distinguish between, okay, this is going to be there because the users said that this is important to them, and hey, you guys over here, I'm sorry, but this really didn't have any impact on it. And so it gave them the ammunition to kind of manage the political, you know, uh, stuff that they have to deal with as well. So. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's not like we completely blew the wool in their eyes. Right. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. That's great. And then, you know, one of the things, one of the things there is people, you feel like people are always um, looking, looking for chances to argue with you, but generally as humans, it's the opposite. We're actually trying to find ways to say yes to each other. And I think one of the things you're hitting there, you, you, without by say, saying, I told you so, you give them the data, you give them the ability to say, well, well yes, of course. There's actually a, an easing of that. You know, they, they think there's confrontation, and now they can say yes. So you go, yes, yes, that is what it is. That's how human beings kind of work. We had a, we had a current man. Can, 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 can you come up? Because I don't think they can hear you in the back. It's a massive crowd. I have a boutique crowd, and I love everyone. <laughs> um, this is a variation of what you were talking about, Adam. Um, we have uh, a client who is an in-house interactive media. Um, division of uh, a media company, and their requirements are so bloated that we've actually received exact pixel dimensions for pop-up layers. <laughs> and uh, they give us these five-page documents, incredibly detailed. And so we also, for political reasons, have to sort of give them a little bit of what they want, and we try and do that step by step. So, for example, in the wireframe process, all right, I'll give you the version you wanted. 
is what you required. You wanted this box here, A, B, and C, just like that. And they've done that. And then we'll give them a second option, which is more based on the research that we've managed to somehow fit in in spite of these rigid requirements. And so to present them side by side and hope that the best decision will emerge, if there is a best decision, and hopefully there is one. And most of the time, it's, it, it seems to work. So sort of like a little bit of trickery involved. <laughs> But, um, but we find it so just like an addition, really. Yeah. Now let me ask the same thing. That's a lot of extra work. Do you ever find resentment on your team? Why are we doing this? Why can't they do it themselves? No, because the gratification of winning is so great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like a big seesaw. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I cost me this, but man, I got that. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely, it's easier with people who had, you said, had black eyes. Anybody has a black eye, has had a black eye before, it's definitely easier with them. I think it's a little tougher with the younger ones. Like, but this is wrong! <laughs> God, well, you still think there's justice in the world? Exactly. It's all about that poker face. <laughs> yeah, come on up. Come on up. And anybody else, if you can queue up. You don't have to wait. What? Yeah, queue Hi. I wanted to talk about that point you raised about everyone loves the user except when it gets painful. So I had an experience with that conducting user tests. That's most of what I do. Um, what we were testing wasn't difficult to use, but we had some people who were exhibiting edge case behavior and some people who just weren't getting the way it was laid out. And even some of our best internal advocates of usability were saying, well, that's not our user. They just don't get it. They're dumb. I was horrified. Horrified. That is not acceptable to me, and I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I have pontificated on this in different meetings with these people who are saying those things. Yeah. So what's your experience with when it gets painful? How did you deal with that? Uh, well, uh, some of it's in the presentation, right? I mean, um, uh, a lot of times with me, it's repetition. It's, it's uh, uh, now it hurts, so now I have to go consensus all over again. It comes back to consensus. Now, when I say consensus, this is not a touchy-feely, this is a happy morning and the sun is shining, we all get together kumbaya. Uh, I have no use, I've never found much use uh, um, um, when people say, well, I'll put up with this bad thing so that you'll, you'll put up with my bad thing. You just end up with two bad things. When I talk about consensus, really the approach is there's enough of what I care about dearly in there that I don't mind that there's enough of what you care about dearly in there. And then multiply that times the number of stakeholders. This is hard fought. This is really tough stuff to get. But what you're looking for is, you know, I'm consulting now, right? I can use the diagrams. It's the overlap of these circles, right? Um, and so my experience, almost always the first thing you do is, well, let me see if I can get that. Then diagram back. Let me see if I can get them back to the place where I said, no, look, you said you wanted ABCDFG. You said you needed this. You said you needed this. How does this not do that? Where I've failed in that, and I've failed plenty of times. Um, I can't tell you it's a great solution to work all the time. I've failed plenty of times. Where I've failed in that is where people won't, won't allow me to make that part. That it is what they said. I know it. I got them on tape. I got them everywhere. And they, and they, they can't feel, they can't, they either can't admit it or they can't see it that way. No, no, that's not what I said. Or they didn't really commit to it in the first place, which touches on another point, which is, you know, uh, uh, um, 
they haven't actually bought in. They said, well, yeah, that sounds great. But what they were thinking was, that sounds great, unless it sounds different than some other time, then I don't like the way it is. Um, so I have a lot of personal frustration with the fickleness of that. Because when I say, I mean, honestly, uh, uh, I've lost hope on justice, but I haven't. It's still in me. I still have it very deep inside of me. It's still an idealist. I get frustrated with, when I say I bought into it, I bought into it. I'm going to stick to it, even if it hurts me. And so there's still a part of my head that says, well, they said. Uh, and so I go off in a room and I say that for a little while and then I come back and I say, okay, so what were we talking about? So almost always my first pass at that is, well, I have to go back to that. If I, and that's how I define the problem. So if I can't get the consensus, I'm actually off of, hey, there's pain. And I'm on, why can't I get consensus? Because without that, I don't think I can move forward. Um, unless magically I become king, which ain't gonna happen. Yeah, I don't wanna hog the floor too much longer, but. The disconnect that I saw in my experience was, I think that as UX people, we assume that we don't know everything and that we need to learn about this person, the user, because we're not them. But a stakeholder is gonna think, well, this is the way I think it should work, and if the user doesn't get it, they're just dumb. Not all stakeholders are like that, of course, but I think that's where part of that thinking comes from. It's part of our culture and our, our genetic makeup as professionals to think, I don't know, and that's okay, and that's actually a good thing. Right, right. Yeah, if, you're, if, you, if it is your ass that this thing launches, the ability to say, wow, we don't really know that. I, I, it must be very uncomfortable for them. And I actually love those moments when I realized that I was wrong. Yeah, right, right, exactly. I, mean, I didn't, didn't want to hit on it, but one of the things is you put this lame-ass idea in there so you know it's going to fail. Sometimes it works. You know, glad I didn't say it out loud. That it, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, hello. Uh, Greg Blumann from Mine. I just have a quick question. I attended a very interesting uh, feedback uh, seminar. Uh, it was on giving and receiving feedback. And one of the ideas was exchanging middle managers in different groups. And uh, the gentleman said it really worked very well. So I was wondering if you had any experience exchanging user experience managers with maybe design managers. Because I feel like a lot of the problems that we face would go away like that magically. Uh, if we only could do that. It is a fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. It would be like a fairy tale. Oh, well, Thank you. No, actually, I'm, I'm not going to answer because I want to. I think you're, you have a much better, more interesting answer. I mean, have you tried it? You, so you went to the uh, seminar to do it. We have not tried it at eBay, but I would like to see that happen, you know, because I feel like the different pain points that, that designers feel with us and with the users, uh, I don't like that word, but, you know, that, that's a whole other story. But the, uh, and, and the different pain points that we feel yeah. as user experience people with the design and, uh, and with the development, I think that would really go away. I think a, a lot of that stuff would just happen magically if we did that. I find that impossible to believe, but I, I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I have never tried it, so I don't know how that would work. But you got to try it, and then you got to give a seminar on it, because I mean, we got we to gotta know. Absolutely. we got to know. Is eBay the kind of place, I talked about fascist environments and democratic environments, is eBay the kind of place where you're going to get the opportunity to do that? I think, I think eBay is a great place where we, we try to work as much collaboratively as we can, but I think uh, so recently it was a little more siloed yeah. uh, in different groups, so it made a, a lot more, it made it a lot more difficult because user experience didn't have as much of a line as the designers, because it was really like, oh, you know, my behind is on the line, so I'm not going to listen to what you're saying, I'm going to go to my guy. Right. And, you know, because it's, 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 my, it's my job. So a lot of that 
hopefully it will go away. But I, I also had another question to follow up. I, I've used in the past um, storyboarding as a way to right. make the requirements and also try to inject a bit of division into the process yeah. and bring everybody on the same page. What's your take on using that? I love storyboarding. I'll let you free. You're free. Fly the pretty thing off from the side of the I love storyboards. Uh, uh, I love them more as the person who is experiencing them than the one who is creating them. Uh, not that I don't love creating I just, when somebody else is bringing that kind of energy to it and it already is an idea that makes a lot of sense to me, but man, this is great. This is where I want to be. Uh, I was just on a project, in fact, where I got my heaviest use as the creator of that storyboard. Uh, we, we needed to work through a prototype, and we had a business owner who was pretty visual, but he's like a lot of business owners who, who, who are open to visual things but aren't really visual, is that he had enough of it to be a real pain in the ass, but not enough of it to do it particularly well. But he's a great guy, he's a great client, I love them, uh, so I wanted to make sure that what I was looking for is what's the right language, the right mechanism, so I can sort of unleash that expertise, right? Not tell him, here's where the boundary is, you don't go over that line, and I'm over here, and I'm really good at this, or doing the other approach of saying, whatever you say, it's exactly what I'll do, no problem at all. I'll do, I'll do what I think is terribly moral and wrong. No sweat, no sweat. No sweat. Uh, although I was tempted to do that a couple of times. What I wanted to do is, where's the translation device? And for that particular one, storyboards were the translation device because it allowed him to get his visual out, right? Uh, and it allowed me to put specific commitment down. It will do this, and then it will do this, and then it will do this. So we took the same mechanism, storyboards, and one half of us was using it so he could talk about things visual, and I was using it so I could nail him on the if I gave him a list of requirements and said, I need you to sign off on this, he may have said yes, because he's a great guy, and it would have meant nothing, because it wouldn't have been real buy-in. But the storyboard for this particular project, for that particular guy, is exactly what I got. I got buy-in. It also meant that at the 11th hour, the 23rd hour, it should be the 23rd hour, anyway, at the last minute, uh, his, his feedback, which was sort of this endless spew, you know, it just kept coming, round after round, and just like, oh, I had these other thoughts while I was riding the subway, and unfortunately, they were, because he understood exactly what we were doing, his, his uh, changes were particularly painful because he was, you know, he was way deep into the binary pieces saying, well, you do this instead of that. Um, so that was frustrating, but it was worth it. It was worth it. So my experience with storyboards is if it is a device that is, is useful for everybody involved, even if it's a different use, awesome, awesome. Uh, and they're so visual that I personally really enjoy them. But again, I enjoy the most experiencing them, not just creating them. Somebody. Somebody, we got time. There we go. Okay. That's great. So I wanted to answer the first question. Yeah. Uh, we are designing an internal application, and so part of our project plan was to bring the subject matter experts in all the way back to the requirements phase. And so we have them in meetings, design sessions, more specific subject matter experts end up coming looking at, at particular deliverable phases, wireframes, visual designs, and prototyping. So it works because I know in the back of my head that users are going to get that. They're not going to have any idea what to do. And then they go, so what do you guys think? And they say, I don't get that. I don't know what to do. And so it's not it's not the So yeah. it's been nice. Yeah, sort of overlap there, right? Exactly. Get the, get the users to help us. Exactly. Cool. Well, I think uh, the bad cops are going to stand up. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Please, uh, if 
if you have any uh, questions or comments for Dan, we'll head over across the hall. Do not approach the podium. He needs to swap out.